So without further ado, please give a warm welcome to Noah Hawley and Bob Odenkirk. Didn't show up. Should we save these, or should we? Uh, uh, well, my my wife could come and sit in yeah, the front if she wanted to. And my composer Kyle? Jeff Russo could come and sit in the front. Otherwise, we good. feel like Naomi, we're you can come up here. She's talking Before to she. She's right here. Your wife's right oh, next to you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, she's Hi, there. Honey. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. I don't have my glasses on. Uh, <laughs> it's a nice Hi, everyone. Let's hear for this guy. Thank you. How great is he? Who liked Fargo? Uh, Noah, Noah, everybody has a couple questions. First of all, uh, it's the book of the summer, this summer, and it's really, really That's trademarked, by the way, the book of the summer. Yeah, I'm saying it. Forget Who's this guy, Michael Cunningham? Who is he? Uh, yeah. By the way, that must have been exciting to get that. It nice was good. Yeah. I bought him a nice breakfast, and I earned the quote <laughs> out of it. So, yeah. It well, good. it's really getting nothing but raves everywhere. How does that feel? It feels terrible. I'll tell you, <laughs> it's awful. No, now you've, it's, had, you've actually had four other books you, yeah. you published. Uh, one was missed in the list there. It was, it's called Other People's Weddings. Yeah. But how have they been received, and how has that experience been? Well, normally, uh, an author's experience on publication day is it's a date circled on the calendar on which nothing happens. <laughs> you know, and this yeah. has been a different experience. And, you know, I said it with... With Fargo, when we sort of hit that the fast lane on that show and the recognition we got, which is there's there's no mistaking it for anything else. You know, you 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 have a good experience, but this sort of thing is a little it's a little crazy, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and you know, I mean, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind, and I just try to slow down and enjoy it if I can. Yeah. Do you feel like um, there's a thing where maybe the TV shows and people becoming familiar with your writing, the characters, the way you tell a story helps you I to think be so. read? In a yeah. But, you know, I wanted the book to stand on its own. I mean, I think... I mean, it surely does, but you can also see uh, comparisons to to just character development. And and there's there isn't a single character in here who doesn't have uh, sides to them. You know what I mean? And yeah. Well, I'm attracted to that. I'm the no small character mindset and the ensemble. I mean, you know, you found it on on Fargo as For well, sure. which was, yeah. you know, your your character was sort of. I mean, when we met first, the first time, it was like, so this guy's just sort of a comic foil to Allison's character, and but he turned out to be the moral center of the show, really. And but at the end of it, so that's always attractive to me, and and this book lent itself to that because it was a. Uh, a mystery on some level that could only be solved by solving the characters and figuring out who the people on this plane were and 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 could that help us figure out why it went down so you know I, under the auspices of writing a a, a plot driven thriller i really wrote a character book which was what was exciting to me and a satire on some level yeah a little bit on some level i think yeah, yeah a little bit of uh, satire and not and not Perceived uh, crudely, some somebody might say of you know 
of uh, opinion-driven news, but really I think a satire of a modern uh, need to have an answer. We are so used to getting answers for everything immediately. Right. And we're so frustrated. And then the characters in this book, one in particular, is so frustrated that he can't just have the the answer in front of him. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we're... Look, we're pattern-seeking animals. That's why we see faces in clouds and everything. And it used to be that we got news delivered to us in information form, you right. know, and then someone had the idea to to deliver it in opinion form, to hide, you know, to put the information into a subjective, like, this is what the information means point of view, and now that's what we kind of get. You can either get your information from some place who has a conservative mentality or a more liberal mentality, and but, but that sort of make up your own mind. Um, yeah, or let something, um, let yourself become familiar with it, let, let time... Uh, reveal it to you and you can feel the characters in here and that's just not okay. We just need to get the answer and 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 tell the story that makes sense of this event which you tell and I, I can't I have to be careful what I say because I've read the book and I don't want to give it away. Yeah, um, Look, but that's at the at the core of it, isn't it? Is the need to have an answer and yeah, it's a story about a a guy who saves a little boy, which is uh, you know hands down I think a good thing to do, right? To save children when they're in danger and 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 yet you know we've sort of reached a point where there's really two parts to a story. There's the building up and the tearing down part. And, and again, that idea of the pattern seeking, you know, you have, like in Fargo, you know, the, the reality with life is that it's a little bit random and there are coincidences that are hard to explain and they don't fit the regular narrative. So if you have a guy who survived a plane crash who happens to be a painter whose wor- recent work was about disaster scenes, that seems like it has to mean something yeah, yeah, as opposed right. to a random detail. And and so, you know, that's exciting to me, that the idea, you know, because they teach you in fiction to kind of take the coincidence and random out of it, the sort of stranger-than-fiction qualities, because it seems convenient. But really that's, you know, in Fargo what we do as well, which is it's supposed to be a true story, so... We have to add to that truthiness of it, you know, which is like sometimes fish fall from the sky or there's a UFO or something. Yeah. Now, um, everybody's second question besides what what is the book about? Where do I shop? Yeah. No, everyone's question is how do you how do you do this? How are you juggling all this? Right. Fargo Um, and mm -hmm. another series Mm -hmm. that you've just begun. Yeah. And this book and of yeah. course in my mind as I told you earlier when we hung out uh, I figured oh he wrote this book in junior high <laughs> yeah no was, uh, yeah. I have found a rift in the time space continuum and I go there for years at a time to write uh, no I don't know you know you just gotta get up in the morning out. and get stuff done I think and, and you know, look I don't I, I won't work on the weekends I have small kids and I'm shit after 8 p.m. at night so it it literally becomes about you know doing the job you know and and uh, I don't know I've got a lot of responsibilities right now but I'm optimistic about executing I'm a little doubtful about executing all of them but you know there is also that freelance muscle that's hard to exercise where 
for a long time when you're building a career, you just say yes to everything because nobody offers you anything. And then at a certain point, if you have a success, then you get a lot of offers and there are a lot of great things. Like, wouldn't you like to do a Kurt Vonnegut book? Well, of course, I'd like to do that. Or this, you know, this other show or adapt your book to I mean, you say yes to that stuff, except yeah. then you realize you've said yes to all of it at the same time and right. you suddenly have to do all of it. But uh, I don't know. I mean, check- Well, you've done an amazing thing generating these great works and I do think people have become familiar with uh, a, the kind of storytelling you're so good at and it'll make this book even more fun anybody who loves Fargo is going to love this book and the characters in it and the way I, I love the mix of you know story and character and the authorial uh, um Dialogue almost that yeah. you you find uh, in in all, in all your writing. Uh, I love the movie Breathless. Yeah, Gerard. yeah, uh, it's one of my favorite films, and it's got this incredibly simple story and a gun and a girl, and then these interludes of um, philosophizing that I just love people doing. I love people talking about how they feel about life and yeah. how it makes sense to them. They they express uh, their philosophy, and you're very good at that and making that very entertaining and natural and. Uh, so it's all a part of this this book and all your writing. What do you yeah. think about that, though, when you do write? Or something like, I picked out some uh, something like, um, everyone has their path, the choices they've made, how any two people end up in the same place at the same time is a mystery. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is... You know, if if you entertain people, they give you permission to do more. You know that that they're happy when you do more on a thematic level or a character level, and certainly on on Fargo, under the auspices of telling a crime story, where you know there's a lot of suspense and and violence and and some humor. Like we earn the right at, over a ten hour period because it's a Coen Brothers movie, ostensibly to have a ten minute parable sequence. You know, uh, or to um, to take these flights of fancy or, or you know, uh, to start an episode six months earlier with Lester buying socks or, you know, whatever it, it is, it takes you to places in the story that in a two-hour movie you wouldn't normally right. go because you have, just have to do the plot. And then, you know, in a novel, I think that there is a lot of room. You know, the books that I love the best have an almost essayistic quality yeah. where, where, you know, under the rubric of telling a good story, you're also kind of trying without, you know, um, you know, going on or lecturing people to try to figure out, well, what is the, what does it all mean, you know, yeah. and why, you know, all these random elements and, and um, you know, what do they add up to? And certainly that was a big part of the, this last year of Fargo was, you know, what what does it all mean if if yeah. if knowing we're going to die makes life absurd? Why do we do anything? And and uh, so you know, but again, you don't you want to bury that stuff. You want to make it driven by the character and right. by and by the plot. But um, well, it's 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 hard to after you finish reading it to not think about the. Uh, um, 
satirical side to it, but it's not in, in any way the major element of the book. I mean, it's a great story and a gripping story and really entertaining and uh, the stuff about Jack LaLanne is so great. There's some Jack LaLanne stuff <laughs> there's a in there. Jack LaLanne Finally, passage, passage. There's some narrative fiction That's true. about is Jack LaLanne. That true? All the stuff about Jack LaLanne is, is, is true, yeah. Really? He was, uh, you know... That's he, fascinating. Yeah. It used to be that doctors would tell you that if you got your heart rate up too high, you would die. And uh, apparently that's not true. Jack taught us. Yeah. Um, and he wore those amazing jumpsuits that yeah. he had designed. And, and Yeah. Uh, yeah no, well, I, I developed a, a lot of respect for him, especially if that's true. That's, yeah. No, the guy, he would when he was 60 years old, he swam from Alcatraz with a thousand-pound boat tied to his waist. And uh, that yeah. amazing? No, he was... It's all uh, in the book. Yeah, it's all in the book. Yeah. It's fairly <laughs> early on in the book. So 30% of the proceeds go to the Jack LaLanne Foundation, <laughs> by the way. Um, now you're reading, and you're like, Jack LaLanne saves the day. I but know you know, I mean, you, you must have found in, in Mr. Show, and, and you know, there is a sense when you're playing with the structure of a thing and you're able to sort of move between sketches that, that it's, it's amazing how flexible... Uh, you know the audience can be in sort of moving from idea to idea and sketch to sketch and and well yeah and the connection of it for sure I think it's much harder to do in what you do because you can't lose the thread you can't you you have such a longer uh, story to tell and you have to keep people close for it all they can't lose track it's it's a trickier thing that you do than I I spin plates. And they only have to spin for like a minute. <laughs> well, are like, I'm going to keep this thing up for two hours. Watch. Yeah. And, and I'm like, my plates are all broken long before <laughs> yours have fallen. Uh, but uh, um, let's see. I was thinking about talking about the book, and then I realized how little I can say without giving away. Um, one thing. Well, I mean, there's stuff about the media in here, and um, there's so many touchstones to everything we're seeing and experiencing in um, modern life. And one thought I had was, and you seem to have fun with this idea in Fargo, too. It, it seems, you know, it seems like simple answers are not okay for people. Like, people aren't okay with anything. Everything has to be... When they look at the world and something goes wrong, they need to have another person behind that, and there has to be a design, a grand design that forced it. And, And sometimes it's true, and sometimes that's not really true about life. Yeah, sometimes there's a Kenyan birth certificate that's out there and we know that we can find it. You know, I think I think that that again, you know, we're the sort of pattern-seeking animals and and there is this sense which goes back, you know, in this country especially this idea that, you know, Oswald couldn't have acted alone. Or, I was just or, I was yeah. going to say that. I mean, when I bring it up I, I've got to say, after all I've read about the JFK thing, I'm like, I think Oswald just did it. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's well, what and, happened. But the amazing thing is that it was an event that was captured on film, and yet we still think we don't know what, what really happened. And, and, you know, and, and I think it's, 
you know, this idea that, you know, and, and in the book, it's that there's a private plane that goes into the water. I don't know who's read the book or who knows anything about it, but, you know, there's a private jet flying back from Martha's Vineyard that goes into the water, and there are two survivors, and one of them is this painter, uh, Scott um, Burroughs, and then there's the four-year-old son of the of a guy who's a CEO of this conservative news network, and, and a, a big part of the book is about the, the, the sort of news anchor on that network who just refuses to believe that accidents, that an accident, that a, a big man could be killed in a small way, and that it has to mean something else. And then when you discover a detail like the painter in question painted these disaster sequences that well that has to mean something I mean we want all the details to add up to something right. that tells you a, a coherent story that doesn't have any variation in it and, right. and so you know I do think that that's a big part of what we do is we sort of drown out the details that don't add up to the story that we want to believe and so when you do you feel like that's almost a theme to a lot of your work uh, and how you chase story uh, is, or do you feel like for this book? Uh, I guess my question is, um, what do you feel? And I, I'm sure every project is a little, little different. But what did you start with with this book? What ignited the story for you? Well, you know, there, there's a story that I had heard um, from my w- wife's family about. Um, you know, a friend of my wife's dad who had died in a, in a small plane crash with his wife and daughter. And and then um, the daughter, when she was two, had been kidnapped um, and had been recovered. Um, and there was something about that idea that this girl had survived this one thing only to be killed in this other way that defied finding meaning in it, right? Because right. you want to look at it and go, well, why would you, why would a child survive one thing only to be killed in this other way? It doesn't mean, it's nonsensical. Yeah. And so that's not what the book is about, but it was kind of the catalyst for the book, which is, uh, again, it's we it, we have this, this desire for meaning. And, and the reality, I fly a lot. I'm on a lot of airplanes. And there's only one person in control of what happens on that plane, and that's the pilot and the rest of us are just hoping you know what I mean and I think that's what the fascination with when planes go down or the Malaysian air flight or the or the the German wing you know I mean we because we all know that we have to give up our control to get on those on those planes there's something we need to know what happened because we all do it so you know I think there is that desire to add up all the details in a way and 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 these random elements that that we go through um you know, there's this great line in A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movie, you know, where, where the guy says, accept the mystery, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, which is a great theme with Joel and, and Ethan's movies, this idea that things happen. You know what I mean? And sometimes... It's, it's weird because it's almost like a mix of this right. plot yeah. that's driven by a person and their simple yeah. cockeyed desire. But then there are these random things that are a part of it, as they're part of any day right. of anyone's life. And then somebody, after the fact, always wants all of that yeah. to matter. Yeah. And it's just not going to happen. Sometimes the goy's teeth say in Hebrew, help me, save me. And, uh, you know, you search and search and you can't figure out what it means. And, you know, and then, and then you just have to move on. You just have to accept the mystery, you know. And I, I think that that is an exciting place in 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 fictional narratives which again they uh, certainly in a 
you know, in, in Hollywood, they tend to drill out of you because they want everything to add up. And if you're going down a road that doesn't lead right. anywhere, right. it's frustrating for people, which is... I well, think- in, uh, just to talk about the character that I got to play in the first Fargo, the story of his adopted son. Uh, yeah, the lost wh- boy. Which yeah. really just... You know, you have never any feature film that you made of that story. There's, you wouldn't come near that thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and that kid was great. I mean, maybe you want to talk great? about like he he had a lot of lines. He was, he was really f- nervous because he was a huge Bob Odenkirk fan. That crazy. <laughs> so wild. He's from Minnesota, you know, because a lot of them settled there. And he was in. He was in the. Um, and he was in Captain the, Phillips. Captain Phillips. Yeah. But a sweet guy. Yeah. Just a very sweet, earnest guy, thankful to be there, and also kind of wondering what it all means for right. him and for all the guys who were in Captain Phillips, some yeah. of whom probably just went back to their regular jobs, yeah, but probably. some who thought, I don't know, maybe I could get to be an actor. Wouldn't that yeah. be amazing? He was one of the people trying to make it work here, yeah. and uh, of course their stories are amazing, and you, you must... Uh, Remember, as you as you go to the <clears throat> the gelato place, and they don't have your favorite flavor, <laughs> right? Yeah, the story you were told about the boy <laughs> who you know lived in a dumpster for four years while he, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, well, and that story is it's interesting because you know that story where he went to the same supermarket every day was a true story that was told to me by by um, you know a, a housekeeper who who had come to America um, she was from Central America from Guatemala and and Bill the wall and yeah she had gone under or over the wall and <laughs> and had and had you know had her backpack stolen and literally had wandered and didn't know where to go but she went to the same supermarket every day and these friends of hers showed up one day um and it's one of those things where you can't believe that it's actually true but it was completely true the randomness of of life and and there was this element that that I felt like it brought to the show but also to Bill's character the sort of joy on his face, that moment, you know, it's like and uh, that he found this kid and, you know, I mean... It it's- says a lot about the kind of simplicity that he had, you know, and it, it, it wasn't just uh, stupidity. No. Uh, it was a kind of a real big heart, a crazy heart that... Sh- Locked his eyes. <laughs> yeah, and look, he, he was. See, I, it, it I, I love that moment, it. you know, where you know you didn't want to think big thoughts about the nature of things. You know, right. like it's that that's that's a very legitimate thing of wanting to live in a simpler world and not wanting to have to think about the nature of evil or what everything means or you know to just right. be in a world where magically. Things work out. The kid that you lo- thought you lost, you find. Yeah. And, you know, there's something so romantic about that, that this idea that your friend from high school could be guilty of these crimes, is you just don't want to live in that reality. Right, yeah. right, right. And, yeah, it's, it was amazing. And uh, this book is filled with characters and their stories and surprises and revelations about who they really are, not who they seem to be the first time you meet them or the type of person they are based on a type that you know from popular culture or the world 
because there's certain uh, characters in here that are you you would you would immediately in your mind think of uh, somebody in uh, the culture now, but then there's layers to them that make them unique and fill them out. It's a wonderful book. It's a lot of fun <laughs> to read and surprising, and it's gonna tear things up. They're gonna have to build more bookstores We're, to sell it. That'd be we awesome. only sell. Noah Hawley's book. <laughs> Do you sell all of his books? No, just the most recent one. That's the only... We don't have any other Noah Hawley books. I like By the way, it. I do have a question. How yeah. is it... For people who do like this book, which is going to be everybody who reads it, what, talk about your other books briefly. Um, the other four, are they similar in uh, style or... I, imagine there's some progression and yeah they're different i mean the last book was called the good father and it you know it was sort of a similar the most similar in in that it was what i would call an emotional thriller it sort of starts with the catalyst of a you know this doctor whose son from his first marriage is accused of shooting a presidential candidate and but it you it wants to be a plot driven book but it turns out to be a character driven book and it's a book about um you know this man who you know divorced um, his wife when the kid was seven, and he's trying to figure out was he a good father or not a good father, and and uh, can he make up for it by being a good dad now? And and uh, you know they're they're different. I mean, one of the things that I love as a writer is 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 to try to reinvent genres as character pieces. So, um, you know, there's sort of an anti-romantic comedy in there, other people's weddings, and then there's a sort of family novel with the punch. And, and uh, you know, and the first novel was about a professor of conspiracy theories whose wife is killed and is trying to figure out. He finally has the conspiracy he always wanted, but there's sort of no joy in it for him at this point. And so I just always like that idea of taking a form or a genre that people are familiar with and then try to reinvent it either structurally or or you yeah. know or character wise so you know they're all available in one form or another um for people to buy let's um, go or or, right, or now, support your local we're gonna library take some questions um so anybody yeah wow holy <laughs> she she has a question um, I just missed a reference, and I may, I'm hoping, I apologize for my anger, uh-huh. I'm hoping you'll help me. The Goy said through his teeth, help. Oh, the Goy's teeth, yeah. So in A Serious Man, the Coen Brothers movie. Okay. Yes, Michael Stuhlberg is trying to figure out the meaning of life, and he goes to three rabbis, and the second one he goes to tells him the story of the Goy's teeth, um, which is this dentist who, uh, you know, did an impression of of this Goy's teeth, Goy being a non-Jewish person, and on the inside in Hebrew it was written, help me save me, and he was trying to figure out what does it all mean, so now he's examining the teeth of all his patients, he's examining his own teeth, his wife's teeth in her sleep, and, you know, he's trying to figure out what it all means, and ultimately he can't figure it out at all. And so he just moves on with his life. And Michael Stuberg says, what about the Goy? And the rabbi says, the Goy? Who cares about the Goy? So that's the uh, explanation for that. <laughs> Anybody? Yes. Uh, I'm going to read the book. Okay. I haven't got to it yet. So, but yeah. it, it came out on Tuesday, last Tuesday. So you're okay. Could you talk about how you crafted that Mike Milligan character? Like what went through your head? Oh, yeah. So, so in the second season, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting because 
You know, there's a, there there's something that Bokeem Woodbine brought to that character that was not planned on the page. There was an affect. There was uh, he just filled out the space in a way that I hadn't necessarily intended. But one of the things that was interesting to me with crafting that second season of Fargo was, you know, it was set in 1979, and I didn't just want the the time period to be a backdrop. I wanted to try to turn 1979 into a crime story, and one of the things about that second half of the 70s was it really was, you know, post-Summer of Love, you know, post-Watergate Vietnam, the conspiracy did go all the way to the top, but there was this sort of sense of the flowery revolution of the 60s had become this radical violence of the 70s, and there was this moment where, you know, sort of all the disenfranchised groups thought they were going to get a seat at the table, which was the American Indian movement and, and second-wave feminism, and so I wanted to explore that through you know, Gene Smart saying, why can't a woman be boss, or, or Hansi's character, and, and, you know, there was uh, Bill Keem's character, Mike M- M- Milligan, who was a guy who didn't really fit in anywhere. He he was not really at home. He was such an iconoclast. He wasn't really at home in the African-American community, and he was not really welcome or at home in, in, in you know, the sort of white corporate crime syndicate. So, you know, I, I wanted to write this character who was really kind of at odds with everyone around him, and yet he was so sophisticated and thoughtful and, 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 and romantic on some level, and, and um, but you know, I mean, that first day that Bokeem showed up, and I, you know, I directed him on on those scenes, that roadside scene with with Ted Danson. I mean, it was, I mean, the first time he spoke a line, I was like, what did he, what just happened? You know, so you you hope for that, certainly, yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. Go ahead. How does your success in TV kind of bleed into your process of writing? Uh, well, you know, it gives you confidence, I think. You sort of, you know, I mean, it's I'm like a 20-year overnight success, so, you know, that there's something really nice about that, which is, you know, I've written these these four other books in obscurity on some level, and, and the, the last one, The Good Father, was, was a book that was was poised. I mean, you know, the publisher paid a good sum for it, and and it was, you know, poised to 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 break out. And then, you know, as happens sometimes, there was a book that was published, uh, you know, just a month earlier, um, called Defending Jacob, which was kind of a legal thriller about a father who has to defend his son in court. And you know, that book was very successful, and it kind of took all the air out of the room. So it was this very weird moment where the publisher was they were going to spend a lot of money, it was going to be a huge thing, and then suddenly. There was no no one, you know, I mean, literally we heard, you know, one reviewer, I just did a book, I just reviewed a book about fathers and sons, I'm not interested, and you're like, wait, what just happened? Like, this was supposed to be um, something different. You know, so when you sit down to write again, you know, there is a sense of like, well, this may just be a hobby for which I'm paid on a certain level. Like, I I keep bamboozling people into publishing these books, so, but it was my first love and, you know, a big part of my identity, and I did, you know, when I first... What was the journey from, you went to Sarah Lawrence? Uh Uh-huh. Then you were in computers in San Francisco? No, I did, uh, you know, I was, what what did I do? I was a musician, and then, you know, I started for a day job in New York. I worked for the Legal Aid Society in the family court, so 
um, a very serious gig, and then I moved to San Francisco and sort of did some parallel legal work there, but I'd started writing fiction at that time, and then you know, I was part of a, a group of writers and filmmakers up there called the Writer's Grotto, and we had our own office space in a, an old converted dog and cat hospital, and, you know, bring my dog to work, and we'd shoot hoops and have lunch, and it was great. I mean, I don't know why I ever left, really, but um, one of the guys there had started doing some screenwriting, and I thought, oh, that's, uh, you know, I used to help him kind of break story and stuff, so I wrote a script, and then you know, ended up coming down here. But even on that first trip, I had the sense of, like, I can get back on a plane and go back to San Francisco and I'll be happy if this is just a lark. And that seemed meaningful, like something I should pay attention to, which is it's important. If you do just one thing, that thing owns you, right? If you're only right TV and there's a fallow period, then you got nothing, you know? But if you, if you, you know, if I continued to write fiction, if I continued to do screenwriting even when I got into TV, like... You're always going to have options, and and that seemed really important to me. Yeah, go ahead, right there. How does uh, one form of writing influence the other? Well, each medium is is different, Um, and you know, fiction is really informed by the internal states of characters, and it's a much more inside-out process. And a screenplay is really behavior and dialogue. That's what you have. You have action and words, and and that doesn't mean that the inside. You you have to figure out all that stuff. What is the character thinking? What what are all the organic moments that build up to the decisions that they make? But on fiction, you see that. You see it on the page, and it's why you hear a lot of novelists talk about how I thought the character was going to do one thing, and then they did something else. Because as you write it, it sort of moves in one direction or another, and and uh, um, you know. But I, I'm supposed to adapt this book now for for Sony and and you know my goal is to in doing it would be well forget what the book is what's the best movie here what's you know it's something that I feel like was really important to me in, in Fargo in that right. in both seasons was you got to tell the story with the camera you get, you know because Joel and Ethan are great screenwriters but you know they write a lot of things they don't Direct, and those movies are never Coen Brothers movies, right? So there's something in in the cinematic nature and the directorial execution of those scripts that make it a Coen Brothers movie. And so, part of what what I had to do was figure out what that is because you can't ask them uh, how do you make a Coen Brothers movie because that's kind of a lame question, yeah. I think. And and um, you know, so there's a similar dynamic here, which is like it's a cliche, but a picture is worth a thousand words in in a way, and 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 you have to figure out what's the most economical way to express something, which in a book you have as many pages as you want. Uh, I, I would also uh, like to hear you comment on the ways in which this kind of. Uh, Drama, serial drama on TV has generated a different kind of writing for TV that that is maybe more closer to novel writing. There's something about you know, uh, and I think it's true in Better Call Saul and Fargo and even Mad Men, where I think about novel writing. Right. When I see that writing. I, I it's the only thing I can compare it to. I don't really compare it to TV that I knew before. 
Yeah, well, you know, this thing, this 10-hour movie, as I think about it, is, is a very different animal because it is something that ends, right? And and you know it's going to end, and, and, and therefore you should know how it ends when you start so that, you, you know, like in a two-hour movie, you can start to lay in all the things you need to know in that first year of, of Fargo, you know, when Lester goes to his brother's house, you know, I know that in the 10th hour, I'm going to, no spoilers, I'm sorry, but I'm going to use a bear trap. So that bear trap is on the wall, and every time I'm in that garage, I, I show it to you, and I also show you a machine gun, so you think that's what we're going to end up using, which we don't. But, you know, but I knew, you know, going into... You know, when I had to scout a location for Keith Carradine's diner that I needed two doors because in a certain episode, someone was going to go in one door and someone was going to go out another. And, and that level of detail, that foreknowledge, is really important in, in telling a complete story, especially because it needs to feel sort of slightly random and accidental, and so it has to be really well planned mm-hmm. so that it can do that. But... You know, I mean, what, what's always amazing to me about Vince's work, you know, is that is that he doesn't know. You know what I mean? But it always feels like he has this out of the frying pan into the fire kind of mentality where he managed with, with Breaking Bad over whatever the six or seven years was to, to just keep you, like, you didn't know. Each twist and turn, like, how is he going to get out of this one? And, well, I think he know. felt the same way. No, I, I know, but, but off on it. most people, you could see them sweat, but you never really did. And Saul is something else entirely, yeah. you know, which is, uh, you know, it, it's starting to build that suspense, but it's a more moral suspense, you know, of, yeah. of this guy's journey from, you know, someone who you see as having hope, you know what I mean? Right. Like, he, this is a good guy. He could be a good guy, and then, but we know who he turns into, yeah. you know. Yeah, The Crushing of Hope. Yeah. This is the subtitle. Great yeah. television. Uh, yeah, to just piggyback a little bit on what Bob was asking you, was there a TV series of, like, recent 20 years where you watched it, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe what's possible on TV. Well, I mean, everyone talks about The Wire. I certainly felt like, you know, there was something in that series from that very first scene, you know, where he's sitting on the stoop with this kid talking about this this dice game. And he's like, every time, you know, there's a dead body on the ground. He's like, every time, every week, this kid would get to a certain point, he'd grab the money and run. He's like, why did you let him play if he knew he was going to do that? It's like, you got to let him play, man. It's America, you know? And like, something in that first scene... To that last scene, you know, where you realize they'd introduced all these young characters and you didn't know why or what they were going to do. And then you realize in that last, that the last few episodes that those kids were just turning into all the older characters who were now being killed off like it was a cycle. You know, so you realize that, that there is this, you know, Dickensian or novelistic sense of storytelling, um, you know, that was really possible. And then, you, you know, I mean, Breaking Bad was a huge influence as well. Of, you know, I mean, you know, getting my hands on those scripts as well and seeing that, you know, four or five pages without dialogue where you really saw how it was, he trusted the camera to tell the story and the suspense. And you look at a movie like No Country for Old Men and, and how many pages, how many minutes would go by without a line of dialogue. And, and how exciting that is, and then you know it's just about getting away with that in a TV in a TV format, you know. Go ahead. Yep. So 
when you start a new project, you have like a go-to process where you lock yourself in a room, you go to different coffee shops, various painters, you have an outline. Is there something that you tend to do more frequently? No, I mean it's you, you know. You go to Tijuana. I go to first. Tijuana. Yeah, and the rest of it is kind of a blank. <laughs> I don't remember the rest of it. Um, no, well, Holly, three tips for writing. No, I mean... Go to Tijuana. You know, I'm always looking for something where I can play with the structure. I'm always looking, you know, when I look at things, it's like, well, you know, what can I do with this that's interesting? Um, and, and you know, either on a character level or structurally or thematically, you know... Um, because any old story can be new again. I mean, you look at a movie like 500 Days of Summer, which is a romantic comedy, but because they tell it completely out of order, like, you know in the first five minutes that they're going to break up, but you find yourself going, like, no, they're going to make it, man. Like, it's it's unrealistic. And yet, that's that's what we are as, as people. We, we want things to work out. So I always get excited when I feel like there's a really interesting way in and, and, and then a really great story to tell. Back here. You've read some in-flight magazines, I assume. A lot of in-flight magazines, yes. A lot of uh, recipes for, uh, you know, succotash or whatever it is. Um, yeah, it's hard to read a novel while writing a novel, I think. And this this was just sort of a degree of difficulty, sort of exponentially harder, because, you know, I wrote the first third of this book before your year of Fargo, and it went into a drawer, and then... You know, we start, we won some awards, and my agent quite rightly sort of blew the dust off and sent it out, and and we sold it very quickly, and then a film sale after that, and then I had to finish the book while we were finishing Amazing. the second year of Fargo, and and the reality is the hardest thing about writing a book is that when you write a book, you have to read the book. You know what I mean? Like you're you're 300 pages into it, and you're like, okay, before I can write any more, I have to read 300 pages of this book while I'm doing all those other things, and you have to carve out that mental space for it so you know it becomes very difficult to read read other things Um, and I tend you know when writing you know anything to be more attracted to reading nonfiction or you know there's a lot of research that goes into the work that I do and some of it you know is is you know, thematic or philosophical, and some of it is, you know, you got to understand how a private jet company works or, you know, how a cable news network works or any of those sorts of things. So, you know, and then you just, if you've read enough in the past, it, it informs you. So, yeah. Yeah, right here. Uh, did you get any inspiration for your book from the uh, Mr. Show? From the Mr. Show, yeah. From what? <laughs> Oh, the lifeboat sketch? <laughs> I was on an island eating a coconut, and I saw this here nasty, stank-ass bitch float by. <laughs> I don't remember it exactly, but it's a great one, right? Oh, the fat one. Oh, yeah. No, that's the crash in the Andes, who ate all the other people on board, even though he knew where the local village was. <laughs> Got his hair done there. It's uh, it's in there. It's all in no, there. No, the lifeboat sketch is a great. If you're listening to this, go to YouTube and watch Lifeboat. It's one of the greats. <laughs> Ridiculous. You know what it is? You know the sketch? I don't think I've seen it now. It's like a. Uh, 
it's a Jerry Springer show. Right. Was doing a special week of shows in a Caribbean island. Uh-huh. And they went out on a boat and it something happened. <laughs> they and they it, it sunk and everyone who was on the boat who's on the show got on the lifeboat. So there's this stupid they're dying. <laughs> right. But they're having this stupid argument about who cheated with who. Right. <laughs> and the talk show host keeps using a flare as a microphone, even though he's just uh-huh. just trying to find, just trying to get everyone to focus on staying alive. Right. But can't stop being a host. The stupid show from I happening. I like it. I like it. It's a good one. It's a goodie. Uh, yeah. I got uh, when you're writing a novel, it's pretty solitary experience. Creating a movie. Yeah. Uh, but it's a hypothetical movie that you're going to see. Right. I started reading your book just now. It's like, it's really cinematic. Uh, did, did you find it hard then to go into this other thing where you don't have that kind of control? Uh, there's all these moving parts, there's budgets, uh, there's. Uh, and you're working with all these different actors. Is that a hard transition for you? And then, do you almost like when you're working on Fargo, did you almost like crave the cave of solitude again? Well, you know, I like to joke that, you know, when you work in Hollywood, the phone rings every half hour and someone tells you they love you. And when you write a novel, the phone never rings. I mean, in that room. But, you know, the interesting thing is, like, you know, when you write fiction, it's a relationship, right? It's you you write the words, but the reader does half the work there because they're creating the images in their head. And so you're engaging their imagination even as even as you're telling them what happened and and my goal with Fargo is to do the same thing which is you know when we watch something it's a much more passive medium and and you see it with binge watching as well which is like you know you have Netflix on and it, and the episode ends or the movie ends and it's like if you do nothing for the next 10 seconds we will show you another episode and you you, you know so you tend to go into the zombie-esque state so, you know, what what I would do if you look at that first season of Fargo and the second one, too, is every the, every episode started somewhere confusing. You know what I mean? It was either six months earlier and Lester was buying socks or we were in a fish tank. Like, there was this sense that we wanted, I wanted to snap people out of that zone, you know, and, and, and the minute that you kind of go, wait, where am I? Now you're engaged again. And, and I think when you introduce those elements, those, those nonlinear, you know, sometimes There's a lot fish, of that in the book, too. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. fish fall from the sky, like, you're engaging the audience's imagination. It's, they have to fill in the gaps between the things they understand and the things they don't understand, and that's not meant to be confusing. It's meant to make it more engaging for the audience. And, and you seem to like based on your uh talking about um bokeem bokeem yeah yeah that 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 kind of uh revelation that you get from watching an actor too yeah no i think that's gotta be fun to see well and it's part Uh, of the process with the network as well which is like 
you know, you underwrite things sometimes because, again, there's a simplicity. You know, the example I'll give is, you know, the last scene of our of our season, you know, Molly gets a call that, that it's over and she goes and talks to Colin Hanks and, you know, and, and he says, I'm getting, they're giving me a commendation and she says, I'm going to be chief. I mean, I got a call from John Landgraf who runs the network the day we were shooting that and he said, look, it's a good scene on paper. I don't know if it's a great scene. I know that the the last scene in the movie is sublime. Um, so I don't know what I'm saying really except like is this the best way to end this this season? And I said, well, look, it's not the last day of production. Let me shoot it and I'll cut it together and I'll show you. And, and, um, and then we'll decide. And I went to set and uh, Matt Shackman was shooting that episode and I said, okay, we're going to do this as a one-er because... You know, I, I my instinct was what made that last scene of the movie sublime was that it was simple. You know, she's lying in bed with her husband, and he got the three cent stamp, and she's got two more months, and tomorrow's going to be a normal day. And so, we shot it as a wonder, and she gets the phone call, and then we follow her in, and it turns into a three shot, and they're on the sofa, and he's you know they're watching Deal or No Deal because for some reason that was the only thing I wanted them to watch, and and because it's it was such of the time, and and you know he says they're giving me a commendation tomorrow, and then there's a lot of silence as they're watching, and she's and you know he says they should really give it to you, and she says no, it's okay, I get to be. Cheap. And then I knew at that, you know, when I was talking to him that it was the one place in the season I was going to use the original Carter Burwell theme. But I didn't say that on the phone because why ruin that moment? You know, that's part of what the managing up process is, is like you want them to experience that moment. I mean, that 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 theme is so iconic and so powerful. And, and um, you know, so I cut it together and there was never really a conversation afterwards. Wow. So it is like sometimes you think, you know, it's got to be really complicated to be great. But the reality is the opposite. It's got to be really simple and then it, and then it can be great. So. Yeah. Well, we have time for. Uh, we'll take one more question right here. Hi. Um, I just I wanted to ask how you navigate between uh, showing and telling as mode of story, showing and telling as mode of storytelling. Like you can get something like um, the first few seconds of adaptation, where he's just like spitting a bunch of feelings at you, and you have something like no country for old men, where they're just showing you. Right. Yeah, I uh, I just want to comment on that and add to that conversation, which is um, you know there's this bias against narration, you know yeah uh, it's considered a cheat or a shortcut or what I I love good narration I don't yeah. have I don't know why obviously if it's bad or pointless then no but it can be amazing it can be if it's not used as a clarity crutch you know if it's not used to sort of tell you what what the camera should be showing you and you know a lot of times that that voiceover is added later you know like the Blade Runner's the yeah, famous example uh, know, oh that. wait yeah. what was the movie uh, Mike Judge's awesome movie that got so beat up idiocracy yeah yeah um you know, I really like stories within stories. So, you know, I love when characters tell stories inside of stories. And, and you know, there was a great um, story that Billy told uh, driving Oliver Platt about this dog that, that he had that he had to shoot. And, you know, in the parables, I mean, that sort of oral storytelling tradition within stories is really exciting. But, you know, I don't think that's a way to move this, the action forward. And I think, you know, certainly suspense... Um, 
you know, which is something we tr we we try to do a lot of, is best served with with very little, you know, and 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 it's more about the music and the sound design and 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 uh, you know, which is the other element, you know, when you're sitting down to write something that you know that you're going to make. You know, it's it's you have to look at what the final thing is going to be, and you have to be able to project and say, okay, well, you know, and I and you know, I start talking with the composer at the outline stage, and by the time I'm location scouting, I have eight or ten pieces of music, and we have this, you know, we share the same sound designer as as you guys use on Saul and Breaking oh Bad, God. Nick Forshager, and Fantastic. and you know, you have to you sort of strip it all away in your mind and go, okay, well, you know, I know that in this sequence. Um, you know they're going to be walking. Um, um, you know the senior Gerhard out, and the you know somebody parked too close to him, and the guy's going to get in and try to start the car, and you know another car is going to pull in. Like that's all going to be about the sound design, and and you know and and the tension of of the length of those shots and and, and everything. So, you know there there is this balance between you know telling a story with words and telling it with pictures and and they're both they're both great and they're both tools that you should use did that answer your question it's a i think it's a tough there's no rules to yeah. answer that question it's your instinct right i mean it's your, yeah i you're think just so relying on your instinct of like i've got a this is i've got to go here now it's just we've got to get going or we've got to yeah shake people up it's it's that thing of keeping people involved keeping them surprised giving them answers yeah i mean one thing that i think that that i that i'm pretty good at in both this novel and and you know in the show is you got to understand what the audience's expectations are at every moment you know they're watching it or they're reading it what are they thinking is going to happen what do they think is going to happen next what do they want to happen and then you can either give that to them or you give them something else but you have to understand that if they want one thing to happen and you're giving them something else you have to make that other thing pretty attractive you, have to think about you know what, what it means, means to have done that so yeah. you know there was that element where everyone thought at the end of you know, or the the first year that you know Molly should have been the one who got Billy, and and but you know instead Colin was the one who got him, and and that worked in a different way for a different reason. But what was interesting there, obviously, was you know here it was it it was a it was a different story than the movie, and yet in the end she was pregnant, and he was in a cabin, and she had left the building, and we and you know part of you thought. Oh my God, she's going. It's going to be just like the movie. She's going to find him in the cabin, and and then even though that I'd shown you Colin Hanks walk into that cabin, by the time we got back there, most people had forgotten that he was there. And there's this moment where, right as he steps out, where you both remember that he's there and realize that he's there, and it's this really weird feeling, I think, which is like you figure it out a split second before you you see it happen, and it's one of those hair raising kind of yeah. moments, and those are really exciting to to yeah. try to create. Well, you've created a lot of them. And Thank you. If you fulfill your contracts, you will be creating a lot more. <laughs> yes. Let's hear it for Noah Holly. Thank you. And thank you all for coming. Now there's a lot of books to sign. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.